0: Please stand for the reading of God's word. Today's scripture reading comes from 2 Corinthians 127 7 so through 13. So to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. Three times I pleaded with the Lord about this, that it should leave me. But he said to me, my grace is sufficient for you, for my power is made perfect in weakness. Therefore, I will boast all the more gladly of my weaknesses so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. For the sake of Christ, then, I am content with weaknesses, insults, hardships, persecutions, and calamities. For when I am weak, then I am strong. I have been a fool, you forced me to it, for I ought to have been commended by you. For I was not at all inferior to these super apostles, even though I am nothing. The signs of a true apostle were performed among you, with utmost patience, with signs and wonders and mighty works. For in what you were, le- for in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches? Except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. This is God's word.
1: Thank you, Daniel. As we open our Bibles this morning, let's pray together. We're going to pray together again in just a minute, but let's just quickly ask for the Lord to be with us. God, thank you so much for this opportunity to gather, to be alongside people who encourage us, strengthen our faith, and point us on the way toward you. We pray that you would be with us this morning in our fellowship, that you would uh, use this time that we share together for our good and for your glory. Amen. I want to take just a minute before we get started this morning to say thank you uh, to everyone who went out of their way to help me and my family over the past couple months as I recovered from surgery. Uh, We are writing thank you cards, but there are so many people to thank that I am certain that someone will slip through the cracks. So I am getting this out right now that I want to say thank you to all of you, to everyone. Uh, Your prayers and thoughtful cards and notes and the meals you dropped off and everything else you did, like mowing our lawn and helping us with things around the house, was a blessing to us, and we felt very well-loved and supported during a time that might have otherwise felt very isolating and difficult. But instead of feeling isolating and difficult, uh, this was a season that helped us to see the goodness of Christ in the fellowship of His people, and we thank you for that. In a way, it was a time in my life in which I got to see some of the truth of this passage that we're looking at this morning come to bear on my life in a very meaningful way. This passage is Paul's appeal to the church in Corinth to recognize how God works in and through the weakness and vulnerability of His people. And because that is true, the Corinthians need to reorient how they evaluate their leaders. It is Paul's final strike against the way that this prideful culture that is at work in this city has shaped the ethos of the church there and driven the people in that church to flock to leaders and teachers whose lives have all the trappings of luxury and power and success. As we saw last week, Paul has made the point that boasting about human success and strength is utter foolishness. But as we see in the passage that we're looking at today, boasting in our weaknesses reveals the glory and the power of Christ. What the Corinthians need is not a skilled practitioner, a charismatic preacher, or even a scholar with a solid resume. What they need most, and what all people need most, is to be thrilled and captivated above all by the surpassing worth of Jesus Christ. Any teacher whose inflated ego blocks the view of Christ— that his people ought to have is ultimately a detriment to the people that he is attempting to lead to Christ and therefore should be set aside. And Corinth was apparently full of teachers and leaders like that. So, Paul goes to lengths to dismantle this Corinthian habit of self-promotion and pride and boasting about personal accomplishments. He does this by revealing his own struggles and vulnerability and explaining how they are ultimately good things, and then reminding the Corinthians that they risk losing the gospel completely if they continue with their obsession with boasting and bragging to make much of themselves. Because Paul knows from experience that in our weakest, darkest moments, the light of the gospel and the glory of Christ shine most brilliantly. So let's pray together as we dive into this passage and just ask again that the Lord would move and give us eyes to see and ears to hear. God, I am grateful for this word from 2 Corinthians. I pray that you would give me wisdom this morning as I seek to walk through it together alongside these friends, my brothers and sisters by faith. I pray that you would be at work in our midst by your spirit to speak hard truths to us, to give us ears to hear those hard truths, to find our joy in the way in which you are at work, even when our circumstances in this life are dark and difficult. We pray, Lord, that you would be at work, that you would draw us close to you, and we ask these things in the name of your Son. Amen. When it was unveiled, Michelangelo's sculpture of David was embraced as one of the greatest achievements in the history of the art form. People were in awe of it. Literally, the first moment that they saw it, people were gasping at its beauty, and people have been ever since. The artist's ability to work with stone was utterly unrivaled, and when he was finished, the figure looked so lifelike that it seemed like he might just step off of his platform and walk around. And part of the reason for that is that Michelangelo spent years and years not only mastering his technique, but also he studied the literal block of stone that he was going to work with. The stone that would eventually be David was a a cast-aside piece of stone that Michelangelo traveled to stare at. And day after day, he did. He stared at it, considering how he would use it. When he was asked about his process, he explained that when he looked at the block of stone, he understood that there was a statue inside it already, and that his task was to carve until he set it free. So, with every perfectly planned strike of his hammer and chisel, pieces of stone which did not belong would fall away, and the master sculptor brought a little bit more of the figure underneath to the surface. In many ways, that's the idea that Paul wants to get through to the Corinthian Christians in the passage that we're looking at this morning. He wants to break through their assumption about what it means to be loved and blessed and protected by God. In their eyes, it is the powerful, the influential, the successful and the prosperous who are favored by God. Those who live comfortable lives, they thought were those who were blessed the most and loved the best. That's certainly the way that we think of what it means to be loved in modern western culture. We think of love as exaltation, to be made much of and applauded. That if someone loves us, they will make much of us. They will exalt us and applaud us. Paul did not think of love this way. Once he met Jesus, he came to understand that love from God to his people is not expressed in his making much of them. Instead, God shows his love in making much of himself. In the gracious and patient work that reveals that lasting joy and unshakable peace are found in him and nowhere else, It is work that requires a hammer and chisel to strike and to carve away what must be removed. Paul explains that to keep me from becoming conceited because of the surpassing greatness of the revelations, a thorn was given me in the flesh, a messenger of Satan to harass me, to keep me from becoming conceited. As an apostle, Paul had a unique calling and a unique authority. He could easily have succumbed to the temptation to think that he deserved some sort of special treatment, that he was better somehow than those that he worked with in the churches that he had planted. But in love for Paul, God cut off that temptation at the root by afflicting Paul in some way, in a way that Paul describes as a thorn. While I was studying this passage this week, I read that thorn really is not the best or most helpful translation of this word, but it's so ingrained in the English-speaking world in a verse that is so familiar to us that most translators just go with it because uh, it, would be, it, would, it, would, it would be strange to change such a familiar phrasing. But apparently, other translations of the Bible and other languages around the world use different language for this Greek word. The word that's most often used is something like steak, Paul is not describing something trivial, like being poked by a thorn. We have a rose bush at my house, I have to prune it every year, and I finally learned the lesson that I need to do that with gloves on, because it's full of thorns, and uh, they hurt when they poke me. But I I, I don't feel like I need to go to the hospital after I get poked by one of these thorns. It doesn't feel good, but it's more annoying than debilitating. The affliction that Paul is carrying around is something like being impaled by a stake. It's not something you can shake off or ignore. It is a debilitating injury of some sort or another. There are other clues in this passage that it is something serious. He describes it as a messenger from Satan, which is pretty strong language, and might feel hyperbolic if it was coming from literally anyone else. If I said that I was afflicted by a thorn that was a messenger from Satan, you would be curious about what exactly I meant by that you would wonder if maybe I was exaggerating a little. Paul is surely not. He says it was sent to harass him. And here he uses the same word that was used to describe the physical abuse that Jesus Christ himself endured as he was beaten before his crucifixion. Paul is not being hyperbolic. He is a man who has been through countless life-threatening situations in his life. He's been shipwrecked, bitten by snakes, Stoned and beaten numerous times, he's like a war-hardened veteran, not easily shaken. But this thorn, whatever it is, has gotten to him. Perhaps most telling is how Paul describes that he pleaded three times with God to remove it. He literally begged for God to spare him this mercy, or this, this misery, whatever it was. Scholars debate exactly what Paul means by thorn in the flesh. It may have been a physical issue, like some sort of injury or sickness or chronic pain. It may have been some sort of mental distress or anxiety, depression or exhaustion from the constant persecution that was following him everywhere he went. Others think it was perhaps a demonic assault of some sort based on the fact that it's described as a messenger from Satan. But Paul doesn't clearly spell out for us what he means when he talks about his thorn in the flesh, the source of his pain. And that could be for a couple of reasons. The first is that it's possible that the Corinthians already know about it. They've seen Paul, perhaps with the wounds from this thorn, clearly visible during his time there. There's a good chance that those wounds were a source of criticism for the rival teachers that had united to undermine Paul's ministry. This thorn had probably provided for them an easy foothold for making the argument that Paul was not a trustworthy messenger from God. After all, they would surely reason, wouldn't God protect his loyal servants from this sort of suffering and affliction? Paul's thorn probably made many in Corinth look at him with skepticism. It would be like getting a recommendation from a friend of yours to get your hair cut at their favorite place. And maybe they're enthusiastic and sincere in their recommendation. They really think you should go, you should try it out. But you look at them and you see that they have a terrible haircut. (laughs) Longer on one side than the other, patches that are too long and some that are missing completely, and you begin to wonder whether or not they really know where the best haircut will be found. Paul's appearance has caused the people in the city of Corinth to doubt him, his persistent affliction would have made them even more uncertain whether he really was God's appointed instrument. But the second reason that Paul does not specify what this thorn is could be that he is being intentionally vague because he's making a bigger point here and he doesn't want to distract from it. It's clear, reading this paragraph, that Paul knows that this thorn, this affliction, his pain and suffering are the will of God for him. Even though he describes it as a messenger of Satan, he does not ultimately point to Satan as the the source of this pain or the reason that it's in his life. He points to God's purpose in giving the thorn in verse 7 to prevent him from becoming conceited. Then he appeals to God's authority to remove the thorn in verse 8. He knows that at very most, Satan was God's vassal, his servant given license to afflict Paul but kept on a very short leash and able only to serve God's sovereign purposes. Paul's view of God's sovereignty is too great to believe that Satan was ultimately calling any of the shots here, but that instead it was God's will for Paul to suffer the persistence of this thorn in his flesh, not as a punishment or retribution of some sort, but to prevent the sin of conceit from taking root in his heart. And so Paul turns the criticisms of his Corinthian rivals upside down. The suffering that they had mocked, which had caused them to doubt, Paul points to as the implement in God's hand, which makes Paul ultimately trustworthy and confirms his calling as an apostle. It's not the sort of love that they expected to hear about from God. And in the modern West, where love means exaltation, It is not what we expect either. It defies the category for love that we see in movies and read about in books and hear about in songs on the radio. By our definition, God's actions here are anything but loving. And maybe one of the things that this passage teaches us is that we shouldn't impose our expectations and definitions on on God because when we do, we will often be disappointed to the point of bitterness and despair. If our logic goes something like, God loves me, so therefore he will protect me from trials and suffering, then when trials and suffering do eventually come, as they certainly will, we will come to the conclusion that God must not be as loving as he says he is. Instead, Paul demonstrates in his own life that God's love is not bound by our expectations or the limitations that we may want to put on it. That perhaps, even in saying no to Paul's pleading that God would spare him this misery, God was a loving Paul best. The writer of Hebrews says that our God is one who disciplines the one he loves. He is a physician who uses his his blade to cut away diseased tissue so that what remains will flourish. And that is a better love, than if he had given Paul what he had pleaded for, the removal of this thorn. Sadly, the way that God's love is often described today is a pitiful, watered-down, contextually formed shadow of what Paul is describing here. Some preachers describe a God whose love for you means that his greatest desire for you is to give you the things of this world, material wealth and good health and happy circumstances and prosperity. Whose love for you will bend to your will, to fit your desire and accommodate itself to your longings, who makes much of you. That is the God that these Corinthians are tempted to look for. Instead, the God of Scripture is one who knows what we need most is not prosperity or even good health and freedom from afflicting thorns, but to know and be known by Him the one who authored our existence and wrote on our hearts a longing that only he can ultimately satisfy. In Paul's case, pride threatened to cloud his vision of Christ, to stand between him and God, and in mercy, God intervened in a way that brought humility. And in answer to Paul's prayer, he says, my grace is sufficient for you, my power. My power is made perfect in your weakness. It is good for you to be made low, Paul. Because from the floor, you have the best view of Christ. The Puritan theologian Richard Sibbs explains this point in a way that I found to be really helpful. In the book, The Bruised Reed*, he writes about how God does this work of bruising his people for their good. Explaining that by misery which God himself inflicts, his people begin to truly understand themselves as sinners in need of a Savior and to look to him as such. They become bruised reeds and faintly burning wicks, afflicted to the point that they might be crushed or snuffed out entirely, but for the tenderness of Christ, which assures us that a bruised reed he will not crush and a smoldering wick he will not put out. The love of God for his people is that of a good father for his children, Who do not always understand or rejoice at his decisions, but who benefit from the wisdom and affection that shape the application of his authority. Paul trusts that God is not only sovereign, that he is able to do all that he wills and desires, but also that he is wise and good. That he wields that authority for our good, that he knows what is best, and then he does what he does in genuine affection for Paul and all of his people. And it's this confidence that shapes Paul's response to those, to the thorn that has caused him so much anguish. Therefore, he says in verse 9, I will boast all the more gladly of my weakness. Paul was resolved to gladness already. He had a theological, theological conviction, a belief that God's goodness was to be found in every circumstance, but now he is afflicted in a terrible way, worse perhaps than anything else he has faced in his life. And he hears God's gentle no in answer to his prayer and resolves in that moment to boast all the more gladly of his weaknesses. Most would turn away in anger. And bitterness. Most would say, I decide what is for my good. It is my life, my pain, not yours, and I will discern for myself what is good. Paul does not. He is glad. That is the freedom of the Christian to not be ruled by earthly circumstance, but to find gladness in all of our circumstances. Paul is boastful, not because of his own strength. That is nowhere to be found. He was literally just on his knees begging for relief. What strength could he possibly be boasting about that he's found in himself? No, he is boastful in Christ, saying, look, friends, at my Savior. I was weak, but he has worked victory through my frailty. For the sake of Christ, he says, he's content with everything. All this suffering and hardship that is yet to come in his life, whatever comes, he will be satisfied. It is for Christ's sake, for the glory to be revealed, for the honor due to him, and for the ways in which he will be proved to be worth it all. He is glad, Paul is glad, because in his shortcomings and weaknesses, the strength of Christ will shine through. He is like Moses whom God called to confront Pharaoh and free the enslaved people of Israel. Moses, in that calling, protested four times in Exodus 3 and 4 and tried to wiggle out of the assignment that he was being given. He worried that he was too insignificant for such an important job. He worried that he did not know enough and wouldn't be able to answer the questions that people would ask him. He worried that he would not be trusted by the people, and he worried that he was not skilled enough, that he was not a gifted enough speaker. Considering the responsibility that he's being given, all of these seem like reasonable concerns. He's being sent to negotiate the release of an entire nation which was being held by one of the most powerful governments in the world and felt rightly insecure about his qualifications for that job. But in that situation, God did not say to him, you're going to do great. I believe in you, Moses. did not give Moses a pep talk. He said, I will be with you. It was God's strength that would shine, not Moses' strength. It was God's power which would be revealed, not Moses' power. He had none. The same is true throughout Scripture. God calls the weak to his service so that when there is victory, it is his victory, so that people will look to him, not his servants, for the hope that they need. So, Paul can honestly say that he is content with weaknesses and insults and hardships, persecutions and calamities in verse 10, because they pave the way for people to see right through him to the glory and saving power of Christ that is being revealed in his life and ministry. Christians, and particularly Christian leaders, he understands are like these glasses that I wear. In many ways, they are unremarkable, they are made of cheap plastic. There were some of the cheapest glasses that I could find to buy. And when I'm wearing them, I practically forget that I have them on. They're so insignificant. Even though they make me look cool and ruggedly handsome, the only reason that these... (laughs) The only reason that these glasses are really actually special or important in any way is because of the difference that they make when I look through them. What makes these glasses important is not the plastic that they're made of or the way that they fit on my face or anything else, but the world I can see because of them. And the only time that I remember I'm even wearing them is when they get dirty enough to make it harder to see the world beyond them. The miracle of redeemed, reformed Christian lives, those who have been made new in the likeness of our Savior, is that through us, the world sees Christ. The goal is not to be celebrated, to be made much of, applauded, or anything else but to provide a clear view of Jesus Christ. And in our weakness, in our frailty and insufficiency, the supremacy and power of Jesus Christ is what people will better see. And that is our hope. But it doesn't always work out that way. The Corinthians had every opportunity. Many of them shut it out. Paul concludes this section of the letter with a final critique about their boastful habit. I have been a fool, he says in verse 11, referring to the way that he has boasted like they do. He's stooped to their level, taken part in their clownery, resorted to boasting as their favorite preachers do in order to fully and finally demonstrate that it is not a reliable metric for determining the trustworthiness of a leader or teacher Others in the city brag about their accomplishments, their devotion to God and their wealth, as though those things confirm God's approval of them. But Paul says sarcastically, I am not at all inferior to these super apostles. I'm just as good, just as valuable, just as impressive as they are, with all their merit badges and trophies. Then he says in verse 11, even though I am nothing. That's quite a jab. You can see, he says, I'm just as strong as they are. By which I mean that we are all all equally pitiful and insignificant. But many Corinthians are still convinced that prosperity and power are good indicators of God's blessing. So they've clung to these super apostles, as Paul refers to them sarcastically. Even though, Paul says, the signs of a true apostle were performed among you, Miracles and signs and wonders and mighty works were carried out in Corinth, proofs that God was at work through his servant Paul. But just as it was when Jesus himself was performing his own signs and mighty works, many rejected him and neglected what the signs pointed to. But Paul longed for them to see through him to Christ, just as he did in every city that he visited. And he makes that point asking in verse 13, in what were you less favored than the rest of the churches except that I myself did not burden you. Forgive me this wrong. He's not collected support from the Corinthians, even though he was entitled to do so. Since the wealth of the city of Corinth had made it an attractive destination for teachers and preachers seeking to make a fortune for themselves, Paul had evidently decided against asking for financial support entirely. He didn't want anyone to get the wrong idea about him, that he was in it for the money. But Even that decision was used against him by his rival teachers who mocked his poverty and his ragged clothing. So he concludes, forgive me this wrong with sarcasm. Pardon me for not being obsessed with wealth and manipulating you into giving me a bunch of your money. The sarcasm is so thick you could cut it with a knife, but Paul's point is clear. A worthwhile Christian leader is one who hopes not for your money— but that through him you will see Christ. Glasses are only good when you look through them, not at them. And in his weakness, the thorn in the flesh that he is so afflicted with, Paul is seen and understood as a leader in whom they can recognize the power of Christ. That is why Paul spends so much of his time in this book defending his ministry. Reading the letter of 2 Corinthians, we might get a feeling like Paul is a little bit self-obsessed, like he just can't handle the fact that he's not the most popular teacher in Corinth. It really bothers him that other people are more beloved and have larger followings there. But he clearly is not bothered by that, as we see throughout the letter and even in this passage, in comments like the one he makes here, that he does not mind insults and abuse and persecution and all other kinds of rejection. He doesn't mind those things. They don't get to him. What he does mind is that these people are being lied to, manipulated, and squeezed for money by super apostles who are not proving the power of Christ or preaching the true gospel. Paul cannot abide that type of abuse. So he calls the Corinthians one last time to see Christ through him. The weak vessel whom God has sent to carry the message of salvation to Gentile cities, just like this one. So that by him, people would be able to recognize that the power of salvation belongs to Christ alone, not a preacher. So that the transforming power of redemption would be recognized to be wielded by the Holy Spirit, not by any man. No matter how impressive or capable, skilled, charismatic, or strong he might be. In the eyes of many in Corinth, Paul's suffering was a sign of God's disapproval. For Paul, it was proof of his love. How often, I wonder, do we think more like the Corinthians than we realize? When trial or hardship come into our lives, how often does our mind drift toward thinking that God is angry, that he's neglecting us, or that he's striking against us for some transgression? How often do we think of God in this way, like he's just waiting around, to smack us for stepping out of line, when perhaps he is moving for our good, leading us out of sin and into righteousness, like a master sculptor with a mallet and a chisel in his hand, knowing that the strike will bring pain as the stone of our life is split and splintered, but in whose hands we are being made into people who reflect the mastery and the capability of the artist himself, people in whom the glory and grace of Christ Are more clearly seen. I don't deny that it is a frightening thing to consider that God Himself may be the designer of our pain and hardship. To think that it is the God we gather to praise, in whom we trust, who is at work in it. Of course, we know that the sinfulness of the world is what ultimately creates suffering. The brokenness and rebellion of this place and our participation in it as sinners is the ultimate reason that suffering and hardship and heartbreak exist because sin brought with it deceit and disappointment and sickness and death itself. Though God does not promise that life following him will be free of such pain, he does promise that as his child, your pain will never be for nothing. He will redeem it all for your good and for his glory. If we define love as exaltation, we will be angry with God. We will accuse him of cruelty and carelessness. But in Paul's life, we see a better way. God's kindness is at work in good affliction. He redeems the pain that we endure, revealing the supremacy of his son, the saving work of the cross and the assurance of our hope. He does not waste a single one of your tears. And that is a great comfort if we are willing to hear it. It will shape the way that we respond to suffering when it comes. When we are afflicted by our own thorn in the flesh and we plead with God to remove it, when we beg Him for relief and He gently says, no, we will be tempted to think that His love for us is small, when in truth it is grander and sweeter than we ever might have imagined. So as we close this morning, there are just a few words of encouragement I'd like to leave with you. Four points about the ways that this passage and the truths in it shape our lives. First is the hardest. Expect painful days to come. Paul was God's chosen instrument, hand-selected for God's mission among the Gentile world God reached out in grace to confront Paul, to open his eyes to the life-giving truth of the gospel of Christ, and on that very day, he said, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. God does not promise people easy lives. He does not say that as long as you are faithful enough, pray hard enough, believe deeply enough, or look to him Faithfully enough that you will be able to overcome any obstacle or avoid all pain. Anyone who tells that to you, anyone who makes that promise to you is either lying to you or trying to manipulate you. Because if that were true, if, if it were true that our faithfulness to God, our our, our, our our determination to serve Him well, would protect us in this life, then Paul would have lived a very different life. God does not promise people luxury, or prosperity, or health, or comfort. Days of suffering will come. Expect them. No matter how well we try to insulate ourselves against them, people we love will get sick. Layoffs will send us looking for work again and again, and car accidents will happen. Terrible things and dark days will come into our lives. Those days will come. Denying that truth would only make it harder to bear when they do. Secondly, When those days do come, ask, what might God be teaching, revealing, or confronting? When those days that we so dread do come into our lives, we will either turn toward God or away from Him. There is no middle road. There are those two paths and only those two, because the darkest days of our lives change us. They change who we are. We will not remain the same in our disposition toward God when those dark days come. Those two paths are the only two. We will turn toward God or away from Him. Suffering and hardship, they leave a mark on us. We will either look to God's power to sustain us, or we will scorn Him for not preventing whatever it is that we're dealing with in life. In weakness, and on those dark days, we have unique opportunities to see God's strength. When everything else we depend on is swept away, we have the chance to see, a unique opportunity to see, that Christ alone is immovable. And in the grief that we feel at the loss of the things we love, we have the chance to cling to Christ, who will never be lost. Third, when those dark days do come, ask, how might the world around me see the power of Christ at work in me during this heartache. In the midst of suffering, we are given a platform we don't typically have. I remember a particular example of this, which I heard about when I was a, a new Christian, and which had a profound impact on me. A pastor named Matt Chandler had been diagnosed with an aggressive and typically fatal brain cancer at age 35. He might have been bitter and resentful, asking why God would allow such a thing to someone who dedicated his life to preaching the gospel and serving God and helping his people. He might have been angry, considering the wife and three children that he'd leave behind if this cancer did claim his life. But instead, he said again and again in interviews that he was actually grateful that God had counted him worthy to endure this cancer. He was content, thankful even boasting in his weakness and looking for the power and sufficiency of Christ to shine through his life. He was aware that his attitude toward the darkest days of his life would be the most important sermon that he would ever preach and that he had the chance to see God's grace perfected in his own weakness. As he faced the frailty of his own life, he embodied Paul's words from 2 Corinthians 4 where he described Paul's, Paul's describing his own life, meaning, uh, meaning the threatening circumstances that he's enduring, writing, "'We have this treasure, the knowledge of God and His mercy, in jars of clay to show the surpassing power belongs to God and not to us. Days of grief, when our lives are revealed to be as fragile as clay.'" are the days when we are best positioned to display the unshakable, unbreakable power and mercy of our Savior. Fourth, and finally, when those dark days do come, remember that though God may bruise you, his beloved child, he will not crush you, but instead lead you to the one he crushed for you. Even if we know Even if we know that God is both sovereign and wise, in dark days of suffering, it is harder to remember that he is good. But it is true. When we suffer affliction, it will not end in destruction, even if it does end in death. For all his people, the kindness that God shows in good affliction is that it leads us to Christ who was crushed in our place, the one who took upon himself the guilt that brought suffering and death into this world so that we could be counted righteous and look forward to the day when there are no more tears and no more sorrow. In the midst of suffering, your own suffering, on the darkest day of your life, cling to that hope and that assurance. Know that even though God may bruise you, Even though he may be the designer of your pain, that does not signal to you a lack of love on his part, but that one was crushed for you, one was destroyed for you, so that now you might be bruised and look to him in hope. In your own tears, behold the tears of Christ, shed in the garden and on the cross, for the recompense of your sin and the redemption of your life. Look through the grief that you feel to see the saving power of Christ. And in your frailty, receive the grace of God sufficient for you and made perfect in your weakness. Let's pray. God, you are so good. You are kind, and we declare it even as we suffer. You redeem our pain just as you redeem the tears and the pain of your Son. You bring good things out of the ashes of our lives, never more so than when you draw us to yourself by revealing the saving power of your gospel. We pray that you would do that in our midst this morning and that you would draw us close to you and give us strength to face the day that is the darkest. I pray these things with hope and confidence in the name of your Son.